All right, welcome to week six of Beyond Limits, and we made it. We are in the last week of the class. So Beyond Limits is a six-week journey. It's a scriptural journey into embracing supernatural possibility. And so through this entire class, we've been talking about the idea of embracing supernatural possibility. So looking at the scriptures through the lens of what is possible. And so a lot of times people will say, well, is it biblical? And that can mean a lot of different things. Is it in the Bible? Yes. Many times they're asking, is it biblical in the in the way that you can explain it in a way that I would believe it based on my doctrines and my theologies. <laughs> so they're saying, explain it to me in a way that I'm going to believe it. Um, and so really things changed for me when I started asking the question, well, what's possible? Let's look at scripture and let's just ask the question, what's possible? Um, and so that's what we've been doing. We look, we've looked at the entire narrative of scripture. I think, looking at this storyline. And so the idea that the Lord father, he reveals himself to man and he invites us into relationship with him. And then he reveals his heart and his desire to us. And that's called his will. And Jesus taught us to pray your will on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this idea that the father has a will in heaven and then he manifests that on earth and he uses people to partner in that manifestation of those things. So the t the sanctuary was a shadow. The sanctuary we had on earth was a shadow of what was in heaven. And so Moses received blueprints, essentially specific details to build out that, um, that heavenly tabernacle essentially on earth. And so that's this whole idea of, um, of, of what's going on. And so today we're going to move in to talking about Jesus, our advocate, and the courts of heaven. Um, and so as we journey with the Lord, as we're in relationship, as we're, we're receiving his will, as he's revealing to us the good deeds that we're to do and to how we're going to manifest heaven on earth, um, he gives us everything we need, resources, there's angels on our side, we have the spirit in us, all those things. But we also know that there is uh, an enemy, an adversary. And so when we're building the kingdom of heaven on earth, we're going to have opposition. And so that's where we're going today. But just before we hit record and started um, the class, I took a moment to press in. And really, this is what the Lord showed me. Um he said, I, I, you know, I just press in. I say, Lord, what is, what do you want us to see? What do you want us to, what, to do? What's your heart's desire, right? We've been talking about that. Father, what's your heart? What's your will? And it's like he said, I, I really just, I want people to see beyond the veil. I want people to go beyond the veil. And then he, he said, I've already revealed this in scripture. It's just that many have not seen it that way. And so I think where I need to start is this, just this idea that we can actually, it is possible again, that we see into the heavenlies and that there have been multiple things that have taken place within scripture. That is actually what is happening with the prophets or the individuals who are having these visions. And they're saying, and then I saw in heaven or whatever it was, and they're seeing beyond 
what is in the natural world. And so we know that when Jesus, excuse me, was crucified, that the veil was torn from top to bottom. And essentially that's symbolic of the father opening up this new realm to us. And so I wish I had more time to go into just this idea of, of portals and doors and uh, the Hebrew letter that is a door and just all of that cool stuff. But this veil was torn and it's not just that the father was coming out into the world, but that we could go into where he was as well. There's a coming and a going. Jesus talks about that. I'm the gate. They'll come in and go out. It's really interesting. So um, let me, let's look at second Kings chapter six, verse 15 through 18. I think it's super important that we start here and then we'll hopefully race into the rest of, uh, of what we have planned for tonight. So second Kings six, 15 through 18, and we're looking at the scriptural instance of a, an instance of seeing beyond that physical veil and the Lord showing somebody what was behind, um, the natural. So there's the supernatural and then there's the natural. And there are times where he pulled back the curtain and showed people what was happening. So it says, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So this is happening in real life in the physical. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. So we have an instance here where there's um, this prophet Elisha who came after who succeeded Elijah. And we know there's this whole double portion thing of the spirit of God on, uh, on Elisha. And so he has his servant who's going with him and doing the work of the Lord. And so this guy gets up early in the morning and he sees an army with horses and chariots all around the city. So they're going to be attacked. And so he gets afraid and he tells Elisha, what are we going to do? And so Elisha prays and says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Well, it's not like the servant ran out with his eyes closed. I mean, he had his eyes open, his physical eyes were open <laughs> and he's looking around and he's seeing horses and chariots. He's using physical eyes to perceive a physical reality. So then if he has open physical eyes perceiving a physical reality, what was the meaning of the prayer that Elisha prayed? Open his eyes that he may see. Well, we know his physical eyes were open, so he was praying that his spiritual eyes would be open. And so he's saying, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is different than what you're seeing because you're looking with the eyeballs in your body, <laughs> and I'm using the eyes of the Spirit to perceive that those who are with us are out outnumber those who are with them. So there, in this instance, we see that there is a physical perception and we see that there is a spiritual perception. 
And that Elisha prays and says, open his eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes and he sees in the spirit something he didn't see before in the physical. And so we just need to kind of grasp, like grab onto that idea that what we see with our physical eyes isn't always what's happening in the spiritual, right? So, I, I, I mean, there's there's two realms. There's a spiritual realm. <laughs> there's a physical realm. The servant of Elijah had his eyes closed to the spiritual realm. And the prayer of Elisha was that his eyes would be opened, and they were. And so what is possible in this moment is that we may have functioned with our spiritual eyes closed and we may have functioned with our physical eyes open and we may have only understood or lived in such a way that we have physical eyes and what we can see is what we see. And so I just want us to grasp this idea because again, when I pressed in with the Lord, he's saying like, I want you to perceive beyond the veil. I want you to perceive, want people to realize that there's perception beyond heaven. And I've showed this time and time again, or excuse me, perception beyond the physical into heaven. And he's shown this time and time again throughout scripture. And I think we've just kind of brushed over it and not really looked at it as a way that the king, that the father has functioned with his people. So we are the people of God. We are the, the Kedoshim. We are his and all throughout scripture, he has shown people through visions and dreams and opening spiritual eyes. And he's shown the prophets who, interestingly, in some, that word prophet in the Old Testament has actually been translated from the word seer. <laughs> so they were seers. And so they would see or perceive. And so when I say see and perceive, it just, it doesn't necessarily mean like that you you see with your physical eyes, but it's a way that the Lord manifests a spiritual reality, whether it's through a sensing or even a knowing. He will allow us to, to perceive into heaven and know something, even if we're not seeing it, right? It's an understanding. And so, um, anyways, I, I think that this is a good place to start for us. It is possible that we can see beyond the veil into the heavenlies, and the Lord has done this time and time again. So let's jump forward, and we're going to look at um, we're going to look at the scriptures for this week. And so I need to delay a little bit of a foundation before we dive right. Actually, you know what? Let's I I can go off script. Let's go to Zechariah three. I don't need to follow the rules here. It's an outline. <clears throat> so let's jump to Zechariah 3. And then once we see this, we'll actually be able to back up and it'll make sense. So Zechariah 3, it says, Then he showed me the high priest standing, or excuse me, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick stat snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes 
as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to him, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed them in garments with the angel of the Lord standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua, and that's one stone or seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So Zechariah... Let me look something up real quick just to see if I can nail this nail this down. So in chapter 1 we see that Zechariah is actually having a vision. And so it says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. And he begins to give a word. And then verse 8, during the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And so then it says, the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. So continue down he's speaking with an angel in a vision and then he says then i looked up and there before me were four horns i asked the angel who's speaking to me what are these and he answered me these are the horns that's the, that scattered judah israel and jerusalem so zechariah is having a vision and he's having a conversation with an angel so he's in the spirit this is all this is all supernatural it's taking place chapter two he says then i looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand i asked where you're going um, and he answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. So again, he's talking to an angel again. Um, and so chapter three, the beginning of chapter three, Zechariah is still in a vision. He's still communicating with angels. He's still seeing what's happened in the supernatural realm. And so he says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So Zechariah is having a he is seeing into the spiritual realm something that is happening in the presence of the Father. And so you have the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And so we have this instance that takes place. We have an accuser who's bringing accusation against um, Joshua the high priest. And then the Lord responding to the, to the accusation. And so... Let's we have to back up now for this to make sense because I went off script, but it's gonna it's gonna make sense. So let me give you a couple of other verses. Ephesians 6:12. This is the top of our uh, PDF now. 
Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So something I always say with the scripture is this, is that too often we're fighting flesh and blood and not fighting powers and principalities. We think that because someone is against us, because somebody is our enemy, whatever it is that for some reason we have to fight them. And scripture tells us our struggle's not against them. It's against the influences of evil behind those actions. Um, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, well then where do we fight the battle? We don't fight it here. We fight it there where it's taking place, right? Scripture tells us later that we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Look at Revelation 12.10. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. So Scripture tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and authorities. But now it says that we have the power of the kingdom our, of our God and the authority of Messiah. So we have a higher power. I know that sounds like AA, but we have a higher power and we have a higher authority in which to battle the spiritual forces and against these authorities. So we know that he's Lord of Lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So if our fight is against authority, we fight with the authority of Christ is how we have to battle. And so it says for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So John is giving revelate, getting revelation and he's seeing that this accuser has been hurled down. But he's saying that this accuser of our brothers and sisters is accusing before God day and night. And so this word accuser is a word that we see that is one that we use for Satan. And so if we think about what we just read in Zechariah 3, he's getting this vision, he's seeing beyond the veil, he's seeing into the heavenly room. And you've got this instance where there's a man of God being accused by Satan. If you remember back in Job, Satan came and was talking to the father about Job, right? So there's this coming to standing there before the Lord and bringing accusation against the brethren. So let's look at first Peter five, eight, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that word adversary, we're going to look at the Greek real quick. It means anti dikos or literally against dikos. <laughs> so it's a technical term used in antiquity. So it is an ancient term. It It's a biblical term. It's a term that when the hearers of the scripture and the writers of the scripture, when they used it, they knew that this word um, adversary was a word that had legal, it was legal jargon. Have you guys ever tried to read a legal document? 
And it's like, on this day, henceforth, shall it be known that these blah, 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 whither to, therefore, and you're just like, what is going on? I don't even understand this stuff. They're using legal jargon. And so I have to tell you that all throughout the scripture, we find legal jargon. And what makes it a, a legal term is that it's used in a courtroom when there are judgments being made, when there are accusations, right? There's a there's a, a plaintiff, there's a defendant, there's an accusation, and then there's essentially, uh, what is it, evidence and testimony that's brought. And then there's deliberation. And then there is a, um, what's the word, a verdict and a judgment. And then there's a sentencing if there needs to be a sentencing or there's a forgiving. And so let's just kind of play this out real quick. So then all of those things are then recorded and filed into the court system so that there is record of the court case that took place and the judgments that were rendered. So if I am issued a ticket and you know I I want to fight it and I go to court and I lose, well then I've presented my case, the judge has made a judgment and then they signs the paper and hits the gavel and stamps the document and they file it with the the court clerks to let it be known that on this day Jason Villanueva versus the city of Wichita lost was found guilty of speeding 85 in a 35 mile per hour whatever yeah anyways and that my the damages assessed you know my fees would then be this much and this was my sentencing guilty and then I had to pay this fine these were the the um the dues that needed to be done. And so then they file that away. And then that just becomes record within the court system. And so you can go and you can look on my record and it's been recorded that I've been found guilty of speeding 82 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour place. So, I mean, this is how the court works, right? So just keep all that in mind as we're starting to look at some of these terms. So let me go back now, cause I didn't finish. Antidecos is a technical legal term used in antiquity of an adversary in a courtroom, i.e. someone seeking official, formal, and binding damages. And so Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is going to the judge of all and bringing accusation of our sin because he wants to seek formal and binding damages. He wants us to pay for our sins. He wants us to be indebted. He wants us to be found guilty of sin and the wages of sin is death. Satan wants only for our death. And so he wants us to pay death for the sin that we've committed. And so he's going to the father and he's accusing us saying, look at that sinner. Look at that filthy, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Look at the things he's done, right? He's accusing us of the things that we've done. In the same way that you saw the priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and he's accusing him. In Revelation, there's an instance where John sees beyond the veil, he sees into the heavenlies, and he sees that the accuser is standing before the Father, accusing us day and night, accusing us, the brethren, day and night. So it's kind of bad news, right? Like, He's up there accusing us. What are we doing? Just letting him say whatever he wants about us? Well, we're going to find that we have an advocate, and his name is Jesus. But let's um, look real quick. This word dike, so anti-dikos, the word dike, it means right or judicially approved. 
So literally anti-dikos means against being judicially approved. And so we are either approved of the judge or we are not approved of the judge. And so we want to be in right standing. We want to come out not guilty from the accusations with in the eyes of the judge. And Satan is literally against that. He is against our right standing before the judge. He is against our innocent standing before the judge. And so this is super important to know. And so then we see again, Zechariah, he's there. He's seeing this take place. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I feel like I'm going now. You guys feel like I'm going now? Maybe a little bit. I know this is a little, I don't know, not dry, but informative. But let me just tell you, it culminates. So my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So our advocate, Christ Jesus, is with the Father. If we do sin, if we are guilty of accusation, still Christ sets us right by his stripes. So let's look at this word, um, parakletos. And so this Greek word parakletos, again, is a legal term. So you've got Jesus the advocate, or parakletos, and you've got Satan the adversary or the accuser. So we have a plaintiff and we have a defendant. We have an accusation, an accuser, and we have a lawyer or a defendant on our side, a defense lawyer. I mean, I'm telling you, this all has to do with legal court cases, right? The father is sitting on his throne. He's making judgments. And so, I mean, when he sent a king to earth. When he sent a leader to earth, he had Moses who sat all day long hearing the complaints of the people and then making judgments based on what was right. He's was acting as judge. And then we get kings and judges and the Lord places kings and judges to govern and rule and make decisions, right? So we get King Solomon, who was the wisest ever, and that, I think it's a cool story where there's the two women, one lady has a baby and the other one wants, she steals it. And so then they go to Solomon to make a judgment on the case. And in his wisdom, he says, well, just cut the baby in half and each person gets a part of the baby. And the mom whose baby it was said, no, just let it live. And so he makes a judgment and says, okay, well, that's the mother, right? He He's hearing the case and then he's making a judgment. So the Lord has implemented that system from heaven to earth all throughout history. And somewhere along the line in our teaching of the scriptures, we've forgotten that the legal system is a huge part of the kingdom of God and in the way that people have functioned. And so when Christine in her intro to engaging heaven class, and when she has started engaging heaven and she teaches about the courts of heaven. And for a lot of people, it's this thing that they're just like, well, where's that in the scripture? Oh, where is it in the scripture? Let's talk about it. it. It's such a foundational thing in the way that the kingdom functions. And it's been neglected for God knows how long that you get evangelical Christians and Protestants, whatever, in this day and age who hear courts of heaven. And you're like, that's not biblical. 
that I don't understand. Where where's that in the scripture? Oh my gosh, our God is judge. He's judge. Where do you think he makes judgments from? A court. Right? I mean, come on. Adversary, accuser, advocate, lawyer. So there's more. <laughs> Parakletos means from close beside. And kaleo means to make a call. So it mean literally means you're so close to the scenario that you can make a proper judgment about it. It It's as if you are a witness who can testify to the validity of a claim or the validity and the rightness of a scenario, a proper testimony, a proper testifying. So properly, so parakletos, advocate, a legal advocate who makes the right judgment call because they're close enough to the situation. And so it means an advisor or a helper. And it's the regular term in the New Testament of an attorney. And so when the biblical characters would have heard that Christ was their advocate, they would have heard Christ is your lawyer. Christ is your lawyer. Well, why do we need a lawyer? Because there is accusation going on in the kingdom of God because God is judge and Christ is now your lawyer in the courts, in the heavenlies, next to the father saying, I'm close enough to know that they're without sin. And do you know why they're without sin? Because they're mine. Because I died for them. Because they know me and I know them. I know, I can testify. I'm close enough to that person. Hey, <laughs> Father, Yahweh, however they talk to each other, Judy and Joe, they're innocent. Christine's innocent. Linda's innocent. Patricia and Patricia, they're innocent. Antoinette, Cece, they're innocent. Jason's innocent. He is advocating on our behalf. He's literally our lawyer. So Satan's there accusing us and Jesus is saying, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, right? So let's keep going real quick. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses or our sin, our wrongdoing, according to the law, where we were wrong, according to all of the ways that we broke the law, our trespasses, having forgiven all our trespasses, anything that we would be found guilty of in God's court, he has forgiven us all of those trespasses. Listen, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, get this, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so let's just kind of back up. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but rulers, authorities, principalities, powers of darkness in the heavenly realm. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And by he, we are now in his authority. And so what he did was he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. And so he's disarmed them. Guess what that means? They have no power. The rulers and authorities have no power. We have a greater power and a greater authority because of who we are in Christ. So let's back up real quick and give me a second to take a sip of coffee. <laughs> so remember earlier, 
I go to court. I'm found guilty of speeding 82 miles per hour in a 35 mile hour per hour zone. They keep record of that wrongdoing. And so you can go and it's all my record, right? People have records. Oh man, I got a record. You know, I got a misdemeanor. I got a, whatever it is, right? I have a, I have a DUI. I, you know, I actually don't even know if my DUI is on my record anymore. I have no clue. It doesn't matter to me, but I know that in the past I'd been arrested a couple times when I was younger and I got a DUI and that went on my record. Okay. So there is a, a record of me having been found guilty of these things. And so when we were, before we knew Christ in our, in our sin, we've been found guilty of all of the things that we did that weren't according to the law. We broke the law. We were found in sin. We were guilty of our sin. So there's a record of debt and the wages of sin is death. And so we would essentially have to pay death for our wrongdoing. And so verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And so did you know, listen, did you know that there's no record of your wrongs? Did you know that scripture tells us, listen to this, so good. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's, it, it's not selfish. It doesn't boast. Love holds no record of wrong. There's no debt. God is love. Love holds no record of wrong. God keeps no record of wrong. Jesus has canceled the record of debt that has stood against us with the, its legal demands. So what, where we were dead in our trespasses and we would have had to pay death for being wrong, Jesus defeated sin and death and defeated Satan and disarmed the powers and principalities and the authorities. So what has Jesus done for us? He's done so much. It, it, I, it, it's hard to even string it all together. I'm just repeating it out loud, hoping that the Holy Spirit is kind of weaving it together for us. But there's no record of our debt. It's been canceled. And so there's an accuser, and then there's Christ the advocate. And so there's this idea that he's canceled the record of debt and its legal demands. So again, just looking at this whole legality situation. So Romans 8, 34, who is, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who raises to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 3, 24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. That word justified is another legal term. It's dika ayu. I, and it means I make righteous or to, to make righteous or to defend the cause of, or to plead for the righteousness or the innocence of, to acquit, to justify, hence I regard as righteous. And so we have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. So we have been justified. We have been made righteous. We are having our cause defended. We have had the plea of righteousness or innocence made for us. You know, there's, 
in, in the court system, you can make a plea deal. Well, if you plead, well, then you can get off on lesser charges and, and not have to pay as much and your sentence will get reduced. Well, then there's a plea that's made for us for our righteousness. And so Jesus, by his death on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, what he's done for us, he's justified us. And so by his work, he has made the plea on our behalf within the courts that we're innocent and that we are found innocent and in right standing before the judge and that we are regarded as righteous. And so, whew, that's a lot. So kind of how this would tie into courts of heaven, intro to engaging heaven class, because again, this is kind of a foundation for all of that. It's the idea that all throughout scripture, we see these instances, these, these legal terms, this idea that there are people standing before the father and there's the accuser of the brethren. And so here's my question that op may, maybe helps open up the idea of possibility. Is it possible that we could see beyond the veil into the heavenlies? Yes, it is. And that we could essentially hear the accusations being brought to the father against us. Do you think that's possible? I think it's totally possible because if he's accusing day and night, well, then we have an advocate who is advocating day and night. And so at any point in time, I believe that we could step in and say, okay, what are the accusations being brought against me? Right? What, what is happening right now? Right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Listen, when we experience guilt, when we experience shame, when we experience fear, when we experience doubt, when we get off, when we have our identity attacked, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Powers, principalities, rulers, authorities. And we can say, okay, Father, I'm having a wave of guilt come over me. What is happening around? Show me what's happening. And he might show you that in the courts, there's accusation bringing, being brought to you that you're guilty of something. So you're feeling the guilt because that's the accusation being brought and you step in and you're just like, here I am. Okay. Yeah, I am guilty of those things. I have done those things, but guess what? Jesus, right? Listen to what he's saying about me, right? It's okay. Satan, you brought your accusation. And, and just like in the scripture, the Lord rebuke you, disarming, putting them to shame. You, you accuse my children, right? So I just think it's so important to, to just consider that again. What, I mean, what is the possibility there? Is it possible? I think, yes, it's possible. So let me back up real quick at the very top of, um, no, I need to just put it in again. Give me, give me a second. There's this document that is called the Divine Council PDF. And if you're interested in some very systematic theological reading, which is kind of boring, but it really lays a foundation. Um, it's from this website called Hebrew Streams. And somebody in 1991 wrote a thesis to the faculty of the religion division at Pepperdine, Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. And it's called visions of the divine council in the Hebrew Bible. And they go all through the old Testament and they talk about, they give a systematic theology, which means they go verse. They present all of the scriptures that have to do with this instance. 
and then they devise a theology around it. And so there are people who believe doctrinally and theologically, scripturally, biblically, in this divine counsel scenario where the Lord live, lives and exists as judge with a counsel and a ruling and governing body. So let me just read a couple of statements here. The divine counsel in the Hebrew Bible is a symbolic ruling. They say symbolic. I believe it's actually there. Ruling body consisting of God as a supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. In his position as head of the council, God holds three primary offices, king, judge, warrior. He's absolute ruler over all. He makes judicial decisions about the activities of its occupants. And he initiates punitive actions against those forces, divine or human, which cause chaos and disorder, or i.e. sin, in order to restore righteousness and shalom or wholeness. So the Lord... Interestingly, when divine forces and humans cause chaos and disorder within his world, he then makes judgments that restore righteousness and shalom or peace, which is who he is. Shalom, peace to earth and all its inhabitants. So if we look back at week one or week two, forming and filling, we see the spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, and it was chaos and it was empty. And again, we talked about this idea of chaos, and the Lord wants to insert himself into the chaos to bring it order. And that's who he is, and that's what he does. And it's only an extension of how he's ruling in this galaxy, essentially. He's restoring righteousness, which he does, right? So there's the fall, there's sin, and everything he does after that is to restore righteousness. Blood sacrifices, Offerings, sin offerings, burn offerings, all of this is to restore righteousness. Uh, the day of atonement, to restore righteousness. The sprinkling of the blood, restoring righteousness. Jesus coming, dying on the cross, restoring righteousness. Jesus hearing the accusations brought us about us and then saying, no, they're righteous. To be, being, to be made justified, to be made to be seen as righteous in his eyes. So there's a res restoring of righteousness and there's a restoring of shalom. The Lord responding to chaos and disorder by bringing order and shalom and peace. And so his obedient angels serve him in each of his corresponding offices. Remember we talked about angels. The angels are servants. In his royal throne room, they praise their king and act as his official counselors, courtiers, and messengers, right? So in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, the train of the robe filled the glory, and all of the angels around him singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He has his, um, his uh, angels serving him and doing what he wants them to do, doing as he commands, and then worshiping and praising him, right? So as members of the court, they act as witnesses, investigating detectives, bailiffs, and perhaps fellow judges. As members of the warrior's vast army, they wage war on evil beings. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So the existence of the divine council is witnessed by very various literary genres of the Hebrew Bible. It is mentioned in historical narrative and poetic passages, prophetic visions, temple liturgy, and apocalyptic visions. It also transcends the historical timeline from the earliest primeval history 
to the final eschatological frontier. The concept and imagery of the divine council is thus woven throughout the pages of the Hebrew Bible. And that's just the opening paragraph that got me to read this document for like two hours one night at 1 a.m. in the morning. And I read as much as I possibly could. It's a systematic theology, essentially talking all about divine beings, divine counsel, divine courtrooms, divine judgments, heavenly judgments, heavenly rulers, and all of the things that are taking place within the the courtrooms and the kingdom and, uh, of what the Lord's doing. And so I think it's important, again, that we understand that we don't wage war with weapons of this world, but we have divine power to demolish strongholds. If we're going to fight spiritual battles, we have to wield spiritual weapons. And really, again, just to bring it all home, what the Lord was showing me before this was that he really just wants us to know that we can see past this and into that. It's past this and it's into that. So whatever's manifesting on earth in the physical is really just a reflection of what's happening beyond what we can actually see in the physical. Right. And so, um, there's this idea of engaging divine power that I usually teach, um, this week as well. Um, let me see if I can find, Where are those notes? Give me just a second. Why did I give you... Oh, here it is. Sorry. So let me just read a couple of these real quick. Mm. It's not on my notes here. I want to talk real quick about engaging divine power. Second um, Corinthians 10, three through four, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So again, if we want to fight spiritual battles, we, we wield spiritual weapons. It's not something that is a physical in this world, earthly, soulish thing. It is a spiritual, beyond the veil, heavenly authority of Christ in the presence of the Father scenario. Um, so I want to read this, this scripture and talk about this, and this is where I'll end. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It goes on to say, and then the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So the thing that we gain during times of anxiety, do not be anxious about anything. And really what that means, it means don't be divided in your thinking about anything. Scripture says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So anxiety literally means pulled in different directions. It means fragmented. It means being pulled apart. And so if you think about shalom or wholeness, if you think of something being whole and then something being fractured, 
So wholeness is shalom. Fractured is anxiety. Fracture is chaos. Fracture is disordered. It's, it's out of order. And so don't be anxious about anything. Don't, don't have a, a fractured mind about things, but in every situation with prayer and petition. So with prayer, it's not just asking prayer is also listening to me. Prayer is listening and receiving and speaking. It's both. It's, Hey Lord. Yes. Jason, what's up? I'm anxious about this. Right. And so what I believe during this prayer scenario, it should be in a, it, we should approach it in a in, in the mentality of the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so I think our job, essentially, what we can do in these scenarios is seek the heart and the will of the Father, right? We've been talking about this. The Lord reveals himself to us. We're invited into relationship. And then there's a giving of his will. My heart's desire for you is. And so when we're anxious, we pray. We go to the Father in communication and we say, this sucks. And he says, don't be, don't be anxious because. He says, let me help you to think holy about that. Let me administer some shalom balm to that scenario, right? That a healing balm, a healing ointment of shalom to soothe our anxiety because he's saying my heart's, my heart's desire is. And so then it says in every situation by prayer and petition. So what is a petition? A petition is I see a scenario and this corporation just bought this city park and they're going to bulldoze it so they can build a parking lot. And I'm like, no way, Jose. I'm going to petition, I'm going to sign a petition that says, I don't want that parking lot to be built where that park is. And so I can get people to sign a petition. I could submit that petition to the courts to consider the scenario and to render a judgment as to whether or not the park will become a parking lot or not. And so it's literally a legal request that, that you make when you petition. And so again, it's as though we're entering into the courts and petitioning the father and saying, I desire for this scenario to be different. And not only do I desire it to be different according to my will, father, tell me what you want it to be like. Let me put my yes and amen in agreement and partnership, and then let's make this thing happen. And so part of that prayer and petition is going to the Lord with the scenario that's causing anxiety and allowing him to make a rule, a ruling or a judgment to bring wholeness and order to that scenario. And so then the peace that transcends all understanding guards our heart and our mind. And so the weapons we fight with are not of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we can essentially, I use it, I use this phrase, we can file grievances in heaven. Have you ever thought about filing a grievance in heaven, right? If somebody somebody sees a scenario and they're just like, uh, uh, that's not going to fly. And you're like, and they're like, no, I, I'm, I can do whatever I want. And I'm like, do you even know who I know? I know the so-and-so who's the top guy who can in a, in a pinch can say, heck no, tech no to that. And so you go to them and you say, Hey, 
here's a scenario. We need this to play out. And then, and then the person with the ultimate authority, the highest authority makes the decision. And that's the rule of the land. That is the law. And so if we see something happening and we know that it's a spiritual battle, we can go to our daddy and say, Hey dad, <laughs> Hey God, Yahweh father. Uh, do you see this? Can you handle that? Please. Can, you know, can I file this grievance? I'm grieved over this. And so we can essentially say, you're not okay with this Lord. I'm not okay with this Lord. We move to correct this. And so the grievances stem from the father's heart. We ask for his heart towards the situations. And then we pray or ask for a request, an issue of compliance, your will on earth as it is in heaven. And so when the Lord makes a judgment, all of everything that is under his authority must comply with the order and the decree of the ultimate judge. And so we can ish, have that decree issued and then move into the earth and live out um, essentially that decree and make sure that it's um, that there's compliance with it. And so you'll hear in the intro to engaging heaven class also that, um, you know, spirits will get out of line sometimes. And you have to remember of the document that essentially was given by the courts that said, you can't do this. You're going against this kingdom order from the father. Like, do you remember this? Do you remember this judgment that was made? The Lord said, no, and you're going against it. You're in contempt. You know, you, you are going against what the father has said. And so I just want to end there um, just because I think that there's a more power, a more, not even powerful, I don't want to say powerful. It is powerful, but a more effective way to pray and to be in communication with the Lord and to get stuff done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I was talking to a couple of just friends in my life, my, my nephew and another guy that's on my podcast and our podcast. And I was saying, you know, like I'm really aware of the way that I pray these days. And a lot of times I slip into what I consider an old way of praying. That's, you know, father, I just thank you. And it, I, you know, I just ask you if it's your will, would you, you know, could you just this and could you just that? And if you, if it's your will and, and we just kind of willy nilly, you know, Oh, you know, what, whatever you, you know, if you want to heal this person or, and just, it, it just seems to me, forgive me for saying this. I want you to be inf- offended, but it it's just seems like an immature way to pray sometimes because we can actually say, father, what is your heart for this? What is your will in heaven that you desire to manifest to earth right now? And then he'll say, I desire to manifest health in this situation. And you're just like, amen, let it be. So guess what? The Lord does. The Lord wants to heal. you. He just told me he wants to heal you, man. Let's just press in and see how he's going to do that versus, Oh, well, I don't know. Do you think God wants to heal me? Yeah. I mean, you know, he healed people. So maybe, or whatever, right? We can press in again. It's beyond the veil is what the Lord showed me in the very beginning. He wants us to know that we can see past and be where he is with him. And we were already there. It's not as though we have like, Oh Lord, just be with us. No, the spirit's in us. Emmanuel, God with us. We've been sealed. We've been marked. We've been filled. Jesus said he won't leave us as orphans. Surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. 
He's with us. I don't have to say, Lord, be with me. If I ask, Lord, would you just please be with me? I don't truly believe that he's with me, right? Asking, maybe he'll, well, perhaps, right? And so we can have a more effective way of seeing the issues in our lives. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, we have communication with the Father. We can petition. We can file grievances. We can have formal decrees made into the world based on what the Lord desires, right? If a, when a king has a desire and he wants something to be done in the world, in his kingdom, he'll find his messenger or his apostle, essentially one sent. He'll take somebody and he'll say, hey, I have a new law. And that law is that on the third day of every month, every individual gets to um, get four buckets of water from the well. And before it was only two, I'm a generous king, I'm doubling it, right? So the king then gives a decree on the third day of every month, every citizen can withdraw four buckets of water from the well. And then he stamps it, gives it to his, his, uh, what are they called? Herald, gives them to his herald. And the herald goes into the village, into the city and says, hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) He's bringing a gospel. He's bringing good news from the king. Because there's a new order of things. There's a new rule to be had. There's a new law. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new way of existing. The king has decreed and declared, and it shall be law and the new rule in all of the land that on the third day, all citizens will draw not two, but four buckets of water from the well. For our king is a generous king. And he says, be blessed and I love you. And I'm a good king. And then guess what? People come in line. Hey, I'm getting four buckets, right? You, ke- you, keeper of the well, who was only allowing me to get two, the king has declared I only get four. So if I show up on the third day of the fir- in, in the month and I can't get four buckets, guess who I'm going to call? The king, because you are not living according to the law. And I have the king on my side because he's decreed and he has said, this is what needs to happen. And so I just think that that's a new way of thinking and a new way of living, that we have a king who's saying, creating order and righteousness and shalom in our life. He's saying, this is what I want and this will, this is what will happen. And so it's not just an earthly kingdom, right? Jesus didn't have an earthly kingdom. He had a spiritual kingdom. He had a heavenly kingdom. And so beyond limits is all about going beyond the way that we functioned in an earthly natural way of Christianity that maybe we've been born into or been been taught our entire life. The question always is, what is possible? Well, I mean, I've given all kinds of scripture, all kinds of narratives throughout scripture of angels and visions and dreams and judgments and and, and, and seeing with spiritual eyes and hearing with spiritual ears and getting revelation from angels and getting dreams and, and, and the Lord giving details and blueprints and, and arcs and temples and tabernacles and rule of land and law and recruiting people, making disciples, filling them, speaking in tongues and new languages and healing people, shadows touching people and they're being raised from the dead and blind eyes. are. I mean, just think about all of the stuff that we've seen throughout the narrative. And shut the book 
and know that we are still a part of the story of God, of his will in earth, in heaven being made manifest on earth and the new earth and the new kingdom coming and manifesting. I just read a quote today and it's by Justin Abraham. And it said that, um, the, uh, what does it say? The kingdom of heaven is the future. <laughs> like we think about what's going to happen in the future. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It is coming. We are getting closer and closer of heaven meeting earth and the new earth and the new kingdom and all of that stuff. The restoration of all things, redemption, us being with him and him being with us, we being his people and him being our God and no more need for the sun because he is the light of the world, literally, and no more tears and all these things like that is on the way. And so when we think about that and we, if you believe that you're still a part of that narrative of narrative of God, you shut the book, you look at how he moved in the past, how he revealed himself to people, how he invited people into the story, how he empowered people, gave them mandates, did all these things. And then you ask the question, what is possible? What is possible? Is it possible that God could give you specific plans on how to build a ministry or how to build wealth or how to disciple your children or how to start a ministry or how to reach the homeless or how to heal the sick or how to feed or whatever it may be. Is it possible that he could show you exactly what to do and how to do it? And as you're moving along in that, is it possible that his spirit will empower you to do everything you need to do every step of the way? And he will always provide with kingdom resources, whether it's a, cattle on a thousand hill or an army of angels behind you or an angel standing guard fending off all of the demonic forces that are trying to come your way? Is it possible that the adversary is going to be accusing you and coming against you and that you can wield, wield divine spiritual weapons to fight spiritual battles, to fend off the enemy so that you can continue doing what the Lord wants you to do? Is all of that possible? And I would, for me, yeah, yes, absolutely. But you have to ask the question for you, do you believe that that's possible? And if you believe that it's possible, then you get the task of actually living into that. And so one of the things that I'm challenged with the most as I continue to teach this class, and especially when I end the class, is I have to say, am I going to live in that belief? Am I going to function in that place? Am I going to say, okay, I've, I'm off right now. Am I going to press in and say, Lord, why, what's going on? If I have a decision to make, am I going to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Am I going to do that in every situation? Right? Don't be anxious about it. Don't have fragmented thinking. Anytime there's confusion, anytime there's division, what? right? So divided thinking is I'm not sure what to do. I don't know what to do. You don't have a whole shalom driven plan of action based on that. And so we can go to the father every single time, get what we need, get a plan of action, get the course and then move forward. So I just want to encourage you all, um, take all of this, consider it, ask the Lord what he would have you to do with it. Lord, how, what do you want me to do? What's the first thing I need to do? And Again, just continue in that relationship with him. I can present instances, I can teach, I can give scripture, I can do all those things, but information is nothing without the Spirit of God leading and guiding you to, to obedience to whatever he desires for you to do. So, 
And that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs>